Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back now to start chapter three of Peace. And the plan for this chapter is uh, that we're going to do only five recap episodes as opposed to the, like, I don't know, 18 we did for chapter two. Uh, so five recap episodes and then a discussion episode. This episode is the first of the recap episodes, and it's covering pages 142 to 151 in the Orb 2012 edition. But before we turn our attention to that, we want to let you know that thanks to our super awesome, super generous Patreon supporters, we have reached one of our crowdfunding goals and like a real major and milestone crowdfunding goal, which is that we are doing a chapter by chapter coverage of the H.P. Lovecraft novel At the Mountains of Madness. And, uh, we're having a blast doing that. And we hope that uh, if you're not already with us on Patreon, that hearing that news will entice you to join us and uh, check that out. You should absolutely join us on Patreon for our coverage of At the Mountains of Madness. It's been so much fun to cover it. Uh, so much fun, really, to look at Lovecraft's I don't know. Lovecraft at his best, I guess is the way. I guess is the way we'd put it. Uh, and to see the influences that this novel has had on films like The Thing and all of that that film's predecessors. So, man, it's just been so much fun. And uh, I hope you join us. I hope you give our Patreon page a look and think about supporting us to get access to our coverage of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. But. Glenn, we're here to talk about Peace Chapter Three. Uh, this is this is a crazy chapter. The whole chapter is pretty much insane and feels kind <laughs> of out of left field, and uh, it really makes me wonder where the rest of the book is going, or like even what this book is about. But I will say this. I could not stop reading this chapter once I started. So I fully expect our listeners are going to get like way ahead of our coverage here uh, as we do chapter three, because it's so compelling. It's so fascinating. It's so dense, but like light at the same time, like this writing style reminds me of what Wolf was doing in book of the long sun in particular. And uh, man, I loved this chapter. So I cannot wait to, to get to our coverage of it. And this chapter is more seamless, I think, than chapter two was, right? Chapter two had so many stories within the story that there were so many also just stopping points where it's like, yeah, look, we've got to take that whole section kind of on its own terms. There's uh, there's less of that going on in this chapter, though, to be clear, there is still, like chapter two, going to be a lot of story within the story business here, uh, but it is largely one single tale. That said, though, that is not going to be true today, or at least we're not going to get Get to that uh, in this episode. We do have a story within the story, but it is not going to be what I would describe as the main attraction of chapter three. And even what is the main attraction for this episode is not actually where we start. And indeed, we start really where we left off with chapter two, or at least, you know, sort of. Weir gives us one page of narration about his relationship with Margaret Lorne, or the relationship as it developed following the affair of the Chinese egg. First, though, actually, he tells us that Olivia is the one who bought the egg, which is you know something that we were left wondering and uh, you know actually actively speculating about in our, our coverage of chapter two. And we were also left wondering how important Margaret Lorne was going to turn out to be. And here, Weir tells us that he didn't see her much again, uh, at least not until high school, at which point they found themselves thrust together. By what, though? Like, thrust together by what? And, and what the thrusting together even looked like? That, where does not tell us. But we do get 
an absolutely gorgeous description of the area around the the river uh, as it flows out of Cashinsville, which is a place where uh, Weir tells us he and Margaret Lauren used to ride their bikes. Yeah, I mean, where I grew up, we just said ride bike, but I guess there is no road boke <laughs> type of phrase for the past <laughs> tense. So uh, used to ride their bikes is fine, I guess. So I'll, I'll accept it this time. Uh, but there's this bit in the, in the reflection about Margaret Lauren where Weir says that destiny kept them apart and then they were thrust together. And I, and I really wonder, like you, Glenn, what we're supposed to make of this sense of destiny around Margaret Lauren. I can say for certain that this chapter will not give us an answer to that question, <laughs> though she does appear in Weir's memory quite frequently. I also want to touch on a structural technique that Wolf is using really to keep the pages turning. It's an awesome technique. Then he's done this trick for three chapters now where he hints at an event and then gives us the payoff at the start of the next chapter. So chapter one, something happened with Bobby Black. Opening of chapter two, Bobby Black is dead. Chapter two deals with the affair of the Chinese egg. Opening of chapter three gives us its resolution although we'll find out in a few episodes, not really. And there's a kind of promise then to the reader that this chapter will give us hints of some event that maybe will pay off in chapter four or chapter five. So even as we start this chapter, I think we're well primed to pay attention to the extra stuff, like the crust of the story rather than the loaf. And I think this is an ingenious technique to train the reader, uh, as Wolf is using it, to look for some of this uh, crust that you might otherwise cut off. But I don't know. Also, yes, Cashinsville does seem like a beautiful place to live. Yeah, there's a lot of sleight of hand that Wolf is doing in, in this entire novel and, and maybe just his entire oeuvre, like his entire corpus of work. Wolf loves to use sleight of hand, but there's a real uh, kind of absurdly obvious and therefore I think absurdly deft sleight of hand move that he's going to make. We won't talk about it in this episode, but I think I think the third episode uh, in this chapter, we're going to we're going to get to it. Yeah, I think so. And, and I'm going to use sleight of hand uh, at some point in our coverage of this chapter. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be a key phrase, I think, for this chapter and probably the discussion as well. All right. Well, let's get back to the narrative, sort of, at least, which I think we're going to be saying a lot, the, the way that Wolf sets this up, especially the early <laughs> part of chapter three. So it seems like we're here in this very first section of the chapter was really setting the scene for a story about Margaret Lauren, but he was interrupted. And when we come back from the section break, we now get something that we have not had in quite a while, not since chapter one, something I'm very, very excited about. This is a return to Dr. Van Ness's office. And again, we pick up where we left off. And in, in this case, that is right as the doctor is about to administer the thematic apperception test to Weir, uh, this business with the cards that we ended chapter one on. And Weir's really surprised to find himself here. He, he says, I thought we were finished with you a long time ago. And he's also not taking this test seriously. He's actually pretending that these uh, thematic apperception test cards are like tarot cards. And we also get some more information here about Weir's position in the world. Uh, largely, we've pieced this together already, but here we get it made explicit. And what we learn here is that Weir is the president of his company. He's also the chairman of the board and also the chief stockholder. And it's not clear to me if that just means that the business is entirely privately owned by him and that this is just his clever way of phrasing that, uh, because it's, it's actually the, the doctor who says these things. Uh, so if this way of phrasing this is actually just a kind of 
joke, or if this actually does mean that there are some other partners in the business, this is not going to turn out to matter in this chapter, but it may matter in the future. So I wanted to you know, zoom in on that a little bit. What does matter here is that the doctor thinks that Weir is working too much and also that Weir is addicted to working. Weir says that he's not actually sure if he enjoys his work or not because he is too busy to notice. And I think we need to point out that this sounds a lot like Ben Yaya from chapter two. And the doctor seems to be concerned about all of this. He clearly thinks that Weir works too much and thinks that that is ruining his health. And so the test, right? Weir is supposed to look at an image on the card and describe it for the doctor and then tell the doctor a story about what he sees there. Uh, right. I'll come back to the cards in a moment. I want to start at the beginning of this section and go through it. Uh, I don't know, because that's what makes sense to me. <laughs> There's actually a lot going on in this section. The first thing that jumps out to me is Alden's, you know, Weir's use of the word we, when he says, I thought we were finished with you a long time ago. And it really reinforces to my mind that Weir is acknowledging maybe a kind of an awareness of the fact of an audience for this book, or he's bringing someone along with him, maybe the readers of his work. But this interjection, though, feels like maybe Weir doesn't have total control over the story he's telling. Like, he's being controlled by the narrative, not the other way around. And the last time we got this kind of indication was in chapter one, when we had our first story from Kate, is it Doherty's grandmother, or, you know, Katie, about the Banshee, where she says that she not only sees Den when she's telling the story to Hannah, but also someone dimly behind Dem. So this is strange. And I really do hope we'll get some clarity around this as the novel continues. I'm not sure if we will. This is just strange characters lurking, shadows lurking in the background <laughs> of the text, really. <laughs> the next thing we get is this joke about the tarot cards versus the thematic apperception tests. And I think if I reveal to our audience how much time I spent looking at tarot cards and uh, listen, researching tarot cards on the internet is absolutely worthless. You almost need to know somebody who knows the tradition of these. I couldn't get any real definitive information. I mean, Wikipedia is okay, but there are so many decks out there. This is how the sausage is made, folks, and it's boring. But uh, <laughs> let's talk about tarot cards here. The fool and the juggler are the same card, as far as I know. Uh, and so the joke is that like, we are like, I don't know whether this card is the fool or the juggler, but they're the same card. So yeah, this is a bit of a joke. Uh, but the fool in tarot represents new beginnings or something along those lines. And Wolf here might be showing us a dichotomy between the tradition of tarot, where there are sort of fixed meanings to cards in the deck. But the teller, the person who is flipping the cards over and doing a reading, their job is to tell a story about how those fixed meanings interrelate to the person getting a reading. And then in contrast, the practice of using thematic apperception cards in psychology is different. The person handing out the cards doesn't have access to any fixed meaning that the card has. And the person being shown the card is the one making up the story. I don't know if this is a joke. This is the type of wolf joke that seems pretty arcane to me, but uh, maybe I'm just looking too much into this. I also like how Wolf is commenting, or maybe Weir here is commenting to himself through the reappearance of Van Ness about workaholism. Van Ness says this about Weir's overwork. I had a professor in medical school who used to say, 
Happy is the man who has found his work. But of course, the addict who has found a quart jar of heroin is happy too. And the commentary here is about how both addictions really destroy their victims. And this is what Vaness goes on to say. And this is a great moment here where Wolf is pointing out the difference between maybe pursuit of happiness as a fleeting feeling, a pr- maybe pursuit of satisfaction or contentment uh, versus the pursuit of the good. And I think that might be a concept that Weir is actually really struggling with, but so far in our narrative is unable to articulate himself. So anyway, that's uh, that's what I have to say here. But yeah, it's time for Van Nest to turn the card over. Yeah, this business with the workaholism here is really interesting to me, right? Dr. Van Ness just flat out tells Weir that it's it's work. It's called work for a reason. You're not supposed to like it. You're not supposed to be addicted to it. You're supposed to do you know, just as much as you have to do in order to maintain your material existence. And and that's it. And I think what struck me the most about that though, was that this suggests that this is what Dr. Van Ness thinks about his job. And maybe that's fine if you're just, you know, working in an office somewhere <laughs> or even like, a, I don't know, a carpenter or some, something, right? Where you're like, yep, I, you know, make some chairs and then I don't make some chairs and I, I you know, live my life. I have other things that I do and I'm not mentally there when I go home. But I think I kind of want a medical doctor to not think of being a medical doctor as just like punching a time clock. Yeah, especially in this circumstance. And Van Ness is is definitely the kind of guy who's going to like hang up his coat and go home and not think about his patients at all or what they're <laughs> right. dealing with. You know, it's like <laughs> if he doesn't see them, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. So although I agree actually quite a bit with the spirit of what Dr. Van Ness is saying, I, I like want to exempt medical doctors from that. And this really just sounds like Dr. Van Ness maybe hopefully is seeing a, a therapist of some sort on the on the side here. Yeah, my, my GP growing up was uh, exactly like this type of person. And uh, well, he ended up in jail for reasons we won't go into in the podcast. Well, clearly, we're going to be revisiting Weir's workaholism and and not just workaholism, right? Weir's whole uh, sense of, of himself, his place in the world and what has mattered to him, what matters to him now, and and how that is uh, leaving him positioned, I suppose. Uh, that's really the theme of the book. That's what the book is about so far. So we'll revisit that. But it's it's nice here to see the doctor calling attention to that. But all right. So yeah, this last section broke with this uh, commandment from the doctor that we should tell him a story, a story prompted by looking at these cards. And so we're going to get a story here. And we're in China. It's the Qing Dynasty, which uh, does not help us very much as that really stretches from the middle of the 17th century up until the end of the imperial period, uh, which is 1912. But as we'll see, the story does seem, at least to me, to be set in the 18th century. But at any rate, our protagonist of this story is a young man. He's tall, handsome, strong, and he's traveling by horse to Peking to deal with a heavy fine that had been levied against his father, who is now dead. And he stops at what the narrator calls a hostel, uh, which just seems to be an unstaffed shelter with some beds and and some cooking facilities. It's raining out, and that means that there's been very little traffic on the roads, and therefore also very few travelers at the hostel. In fact, when the young man arrives, there is only one other person there, an old man who invites him to sit by the fire and drink tea with him. The young man tells the old man uh, about his troubles, and when he's done... 
the old man offers his own perspective on it. Uh, And let's just read this. Uh, Here's what uh, the old man says. You do not know how fortunate you are. You possess a healthy body, warm clothing, and a valuable horse. The reputation of your family assures you of a commission in the Imperial Army for so long as you consent to wear a sword. Your only difficulty is this debt, which is but a matter of money and need not worry you no more than you allow it. And the young man acknowledges that, yeah, that's one way of framing the story I just told you, a true way, in fact, but it is not the frame that the young man is using. And here's what he says. Here's how he frames his own story. He says, someone else might say, this young man is without friends or family or funds and bears so heavy a debt that should he win a fortune, it would all be forfeit. If things go ill for him in the capital, he will find himself in the hands of the torturers. If they go well, the best he can hope for is a life of drill and skirmishes spent at the frontiers of the empire, and in the company of men not much more civilized than the barbarians from whom they defend it. Now the old man says again that there are many who would trade places with the young man, so many, in fact, as to be countless. So at this point, we're one paragraph from the section break, though this is still only the beginning of the story. And Wolf, of course, leaves us here with a tease. And that tease is that the old man has one precious possession, and he's going to show it to the young man when we return. And that possession is a pillow made of green ceramic. Yeah. Okay. So what was on the card? Because we didn't mention it before. Uh, what was on the thematic perception card, at least by Weir's Lights, is a woman or an adolescent boy handing, quote, that other one something. So it seems that we're getting here in response to what is on this thematic app perception test card. Uh, it seems that what we're getting is a rather involved story about someone giving someone something. But in this story we've gotten, there are no women present and also no adolescent boys. So something immediately feels off, but things are about to actually get really complex if we're to give any weight to the thematic app perception test framing device. And we've already been fooled once by it. I'm bringing us all along with this we business. Uh, (laughs) I was the one who was fooled by it, (laughs) thinking that a card was turned over already and that that was the impetus for chapter two. But this is the first card that's turned over. And it's... uh, Boy, I just do not know what Wolf or Weir is doing at this point. Right. Well, and the reason that Wolf has broken the story here is, in fact, to give us an interjection from a live audience for this story, right? Not us, the readers, but someone else who's in this novel. Because, yeah, uh, up to this point, right, like you, Brandon, I've certainly been thinking that this is the story that Weir is telling Dr. Van Ness during this thematic apperception test, but it it totally is not. This is a story that Olivia is telling, uh, as I guess should be obvious, right, when we think about it, given that it is about China, it's also about Chinese ceramics, you know, literally shows up here right at the break. And we're going to get a number of interjections here as Olivia continues to tell this story. And so in this way, Wolf slowly reveals the circumstances of the story and and who the audience is and so on. But I'm actually going to give us all of that right now. And then we can just finish up the story without any more interruptions because, um, I don't know, I'm the Bjorn of this podcast, I guess. And I don't want like (laughs) pairs of dwarves interrupting my story. So yeah. Okay. It's uh, Olivia who is telling this story. She's telling it to a group of her friends. uh, And, you know, with Olivia, friends really mostly means suitors. So Professor Peacock is here. So is Stuart Blaine and also Jimmy McAfee. Uh, And in fact, uh, the occasion is Jimmy's birthday. Uh, But the party is being held at Olivia's house because she is still taking care of Weir uh, as a kid, and he's going to have to go to bed before the party is over. 
But there are also some other guests here. Uh, Eleanor Bold is here, and then also someone we haven't met before. And this is Julia Smart, who is introduced to us here as a friend of Professor Peacock's. And the deal is that they are playing a, a game, a storytelling game, in which they're spinning a bottle in order to decide who has to tell a story. Uh, though it is also clear that the game is Olivia's idea and that she's kicking it off and that this is the first story here. Regarding Julius Smart, we also learned that he is at the party because uh, Olivia Vi insisted that he be invited, which means that as Smart is Professor Peacock's friend, Olivia leaned on one of her suitors, clearly one of her suitors who's like super into her, to invite his friend that she has a crush on. Uh, maybe Olivia's being a little careless with her suitor's feelings here, like they're all together and she's clearly like super into the one that has not been courting her. But, uh, you know, as the saying go, all, all's fair in love and war. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's look at the interjections, though, we get here before moving on with the story. One of them comes from Jimmy McAfee, who pretty much guesses one way the sto- a story like this might conclude or guesses at, in a more cynical way, the direction that Vi's story is heading in. And she tells Jimmy to shut up and that he can't be a jerk, even if it is his birthday. I don't know, though. I I might find myself being a little passive aggressive in this instance as well. If I were Jimmy McAfee, like maybe it's an ugly side of myself, but I, I get where he's coming from here. Right now, though, what we do know is that Olivia bought the egg. And from the last chapter, we learned that part of the game for Olivia of this, you know, egg buying business was trying to get Eleanor to convince Jimmy that she'd buy the egg for his birthday, which is August 3rd. So that probably means that the affair of the Chinese egg took place in July, maybe around July 4th weekend. Maybe that's what they were at the park for the bandstand for. And that today is August 3rd or right around August 3rd. And also that Dennis is still living with his aunt. So that's all just information that we've gotten from past instances of the mentions of these sorts of things in the text. We also get an interjection here from Den, uh, who really wants to know what sort of adventures the young man might have gone on between the night he spent at the inn and his arrival at uh, Peking. And there were none. That's not what the story's about, but that's what Dennis is interested in. Yeah, what he really wants is a, a table of random encounters in the D&D manual. That's exactly what he wants. Yeah, where are the orcs? <laughs> and and of course, you know, this section this of interjections opens with uh, an incredulous remark from Stuart Blaine, who scoffs at the idea of porcelain pillows. So really, if we're keeping track here, what we've got are two passive-aggressive suitors, Blaine and McAfee, and then Peacock, who was so far silent. Uh, It's just worth keeping in mind because I think these interjections, as we'll see, really serve to give us a sense of who these characters are in like a group dynamic. So we get a different sense of who they were when they were alone with Olivia and Den. It's interesting that Professor Peacock, of these three people, and, and actually really of all of these people, everyone at the party, is the person who, for his job, talks. He writes, too, and does research, right? But a big part of uh, his his daily job activities is teaching, is lecturing uh, to students. That's that's what teaching at university constitutes here in this this part of the 20th century, for sure. But yet, yeah, he's fairly laconic at this party, and, and it's going to 
stay that way. We're not going to really get uh, much of his voice in this party at all, which is interesting because I had not really pegged him as the the quiet, handsome man. I actually had pegged him based on their outing as as actually being verbose because he and Olivia have this real, almost electrified flirting. I mean, it's mostly about killing each other, but like, you know, it's it's charged, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and so I really think that they're all, all the suitors, you know, if we're following the pattern, two out of three here are passive aggressive in different ways. But Peacock is the one who is silent. And I wonder if he's kind of more deeply hurt or wounded by this uh, action of Olivia's to lean on him, to get the friend to come who she clearly is trying to impress on some level, as we'll see throughout the chapter. And just he's wilting, you know, he's he's dying inside. Yeah, I, I wonder about that, too. I think that's not likely because although this strikes us as super weird, like we talked about this already, about how weird it would be for us at really any stage of our lives to maybe dating three different people at the same time, like even in high school or, you know, like that's just not a thing that that we do in our culture anymore, but that our parents did. And certainly our, our grandparents did this as well. I, I actually don't think this would have been weird. I don't think this would have struck anyone as weird here, this whole situation. So I don't think he's actually feeling that way, though. At the same time, he is the suitor who we really saw on his date bring up Stuart Blaine in particular and uh, talk about uh, what, a, what a fraud that guy is. Right, exactly. So we'll just have to keep our eye on this sort of thing. One more thing I want to say about the people at this party is just that I, I want to think here that actually Olivia insisted that uh, Julia Smart come along uh, and, and maybe not even by name, right, that just wanted Peacock to bring somebody, a friend, was actually for Eleanor, because otherwise everyone at this party is romantically interested in like actively dating Olivia. And then there's no one for Eleanor there. So that that, that was my sense of how, how Julia Smart wound up at this party. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and that could absolutely be the case. That had not crossed my mind at all, but that's entirely plausible. Well, and already we just can't resist uh, seeing this as a rom-com of sorts, <laughs> even though that's not what this chapter is going to be about. There are going to be far fewer Gilmore Girls references in chapter three than there were in chapter two. So yeah, let's uh, let's go on here. Let's get the rest of this story about this weird ceramic pillow. So the old man says that this green ceramic pillow is magical. It will grant the wish of whoever sleeps on it. And now, you know, this seems unlikely to be true, given that the old man is, well, he's he's old. He's also poor and unimportant. And if you've got something that grants you wishes, maybe you're not going to be those things. But the old man is nonetheless going to let the young man use this pillow tonight. And the young man is polite about it. And when he awakes, he finds that he is alone and that he is sleeping on not this ceramic pillow, but in fact, his rolled up coat. And that's all there is actually about this pillow. So the the young man just gets up, he continues his journey to Peking to try to get his debt lifted or at least uh, alleviated a little bit. The magistrate there, though, does no such thing. He agrees to collect the debt in installments by retaining 90% of the young man's army paychecks until the debt is paid off. And then he sends the young man off to a frontier post. He, he puts him in charge of the garrison of a town. And there are some things to do in this town, but the young man can't afford to actually partake in any of those activities, which was exactly my army experience as well. And so instead, he just amuses himself by drilling his soldiers a, a ton and also by hunting and even kills some Siberian tigers. And all of this, this kind of throwing himself at his work here, earns him the admiration of his soldiers. 
And then a rebellion breaks out. And for three years, the young man leads his troops to put down this rebellion. And he fights in 1,096 battles and skirmishes and never loses. And I guess that this means that one of these years was a leap year, uh, although he may have doubled up a few times. But uh, the point is that he's a war hero. And as such, he is rewarded by the emperor himself with the forgiveness of his debt. Uh, and also he's given riches. And he's also then given the most important military command in the entire state. And then after 40 years of peace and tranquility, he's even granted an early retirement and naturally, this early retirement, this calls for a celebration. And so he takes his 17 sons and grandsons on a hunting expedition to the northern mountains. And the protagonist, who's you know not a young man anymore, but the young man as we met him, uh, the protagonist here goes after a wolf on his own, and he just wanders too far. But he finds a cave, and inside the cave is an old man brewing some tea. And our hero asks if he can stay the night, and the old man agrees, and our hero tells the story of his life. And at the end of it, he says that he's thinking about that morning at the hostel when he woke up and felt like his whole life was ahead of him. And now that he's old, he wants to feel that way again. But the old man calls him a fool and then reveals what is, of course, obvious to all of us, right? Which is that he is the same old man from the night at the hostel, and he cannot believe how ungrateful the protagonist is, even after he's been granted his wish from that night. And the old man actually throws the boiling water into the protagonist's face, and the protagonist then runs out of the cave. And what he discovers is that he's back. He's gotten his second wish and is now back on that morning with his whole life ahead of him. And that's the end of Olivia's story. Yeah, I'm not even sure what to say about this story or really even more broadly this chapter. There'll be a lot of (laughs) I don't knows coming for me, I think, in chapter three, more than the other ones, which might be hard to imagine. You know, I assume that this chapter, uh, this story might have little crumbs of relevant information, and I'm sure we'll get some larger thematic reverberations as well throughout the text. I mean, we might already predict that Weir, as he is thinking about his life and, and his old age himself, is considering that maybe he did get everything he wanted, but he either wanted the wrong things or he's just really ungrateful on an unconscious level for what he's gotten. And this story is a kind of manifestation of that. But what really jams the spokes here for me is in the middle of this story, Eleanor Bolt says, quote, your young officer, she's talking to Vi, sounds a lot like your brother, John. And Vi interprets this statement to have something to do with John's love of hunting. But really, Eleanor could mean any number of things. And certainly, I think something that we'll have to do in our final discussion episode of this chapter is look at the way John is present in this chapter in a way that he's not in any other chapter. That might only take 10 minutes, but it's going to be something we have to do. Well, he's certainly been looming in the background of this whole story. I mean, he's the father of the narrator of this book. And in that capacity is mysterious and absentee, but he's also just the patriarch of this larger family. I, I, you know, I was trying to make sure that we tried our best to suss out the even just really the financial relationship between Olivia and her older brother, now that he is the patriarch of the family and and the extent to which he controls Olivia's money or, or, you know, her, her livelihood in some way. And so, yeah, he looms in the background of all of this, but he's just not here. He's totally off stage. And that all has to have some, some, some real significance. I think so. And I, 
I think it's part of a larger strategy that Weird is working in. You know, at the at the end of Fifth Head of Cerberus, uh, number five, the narrator that says, you know, I'm writing this to reveal myself to myself. And he's a character that probably won't be able to discover what he's revealed to himself upon rereading his journal. And Weir feels the exact same way to me. Like this is a project that Weir is doing to reveal himself to himself. And we've talked about this in the past. He's unable to make these connections. And, um, I think it's up to us as as readers of this book to try to make some of those connections on on Weir's behalf. That real, really, what Weir is doing is revealing himself to to us. I have a few more stray observations here before we close out the episode. The first is that Blaine is the first person to compliment Olivia on her story. Uh, you know, he's also concerned that he won't be able to tell a story like that. And, uh, you know, I believe him because he's a boring man. But <laughs> <laughs> Olivia says that everyone's got a good story in them. But Dennis won't have to tell a story because he's too young. Also, you know, maybe because this whole book is Dennis's story right. <laughs> uh, or really maybe other people's stories, which is something we, we can think about as well. But we also know that Dennis really admires Blaine on some level. And so we see another connection between them. Blaine doesn't think he'll be able to tell a story. Dennis doesn't have to tell a story. And Blaine is the one who compliments Olivia on on her story. And maybe that's in a way Dennis doing that as well as he's looking back and imagining himself, perhaps, or imagining Stuart Blaine as the good one of the three suitors. Well, I think that can even go back to your observation that Professor Peacock Although he's here, we know he's here. He's he's not in the story. He's not really in the narrative of this party. Maybe he was the life of the party. And Weir just doesn't remember it that way because he doesn't really care about Peacock. But he is interested in, as, as we've talked about in Chapter 2, throughout Chapter 2, in fact, uh, that Stuart Blaine is someone he seems to have modeled himself on. And then we get Jimmy McAfee, who um, also is a businessman. And the fourth person at the party here, uh, who's, you know, the, the, the fourth man at the party, anyway, Julia Smart, we're going to learn also owns his own business, right? So there are three businessmen here, which is what Weir does with his life. And then there's Professor Peacock, whom adult Weir does not even remember what he's a professor of. So I think that it's probably fair to say that Professor Peacock is perhaps more engaged in this party than Weir presents him as here because Weir himself just was never interested in Peacock. He only is interested in these businessmen. These are the people he's looking at as these these uh, paternal figures, these sort of substitute fathers in the absence of his actual father. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that absence of the fathers is a really important part of this chapter as well. There's also this bit at the end, like right at the end of Vi's story, where she writes that uh, about the protagonist returning to the original night where he's, you know, spent in the hostel with the old man says he turned and looked behind him. And there, instead of the hermit's cave, he beheld a circular opening in a wall of glassy green. Even as he watched, it dwindled. And after a moment, he realized that he himself was expanding in the winking of an eye. He was standing on the floor of the hostel and the hermit's cave was only the hole at the end of the green headrest. And just the way this is phrased or the way it's told, 
really reminds me of Weir's thoughts about having died as a result of misusing that chemistry set and that everything afterwards is a, is a dream where he thinks he's lived, but really he's just sprawled out on the floor of his room. And boy, does that image have some resonances with this story from Vi as well. And, and all of this just makes me, me like actually really ornery because I still have no idea what Wolf is up to with anything in this novel. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And this is a beautiful image. And yeah, certainly, uh, you know, there's not a light, but you know, any kind of like going through a, a you know, round passage, I think automatically calls to mind for us a kind of uh the the tropes i guess of the near-death experience and uh yeah maybe that is something that's that's happening here so i'm i'm glad you brought that up i'm glad you made that observation and of course one thing that maybe we might actually ask is is whether the life that the young man went off and led this charmed life did that actually happen did that guy just die in the hostel that night you know might be a, a similar question that that we could ask though i don't think this guy's ever coming back but i wanted to double back brandon on something that uh you you touched on a little bit which was seeing the connection between the protagonist of of this story the this young officer um actually and the not the card right not not the image on the card but actually the conversation that Weir is having with with Dr. Van Ness, a conversation that is actually largely about working yourself to death, right? About throwing yourself into your work at the expense of having any actual life. And I think that that's kind of what this is a story about in some way, right? It's, it's, you know, this guy doesn't have any money, so he just works all the time, then also makes his soldiers do extra duty all the time, though apparently they loved him for it, which I find totally hard to believe. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the least realistic uh, uh, bit of information in that story. But it seems like he's someone who threw himself at his work, did really well, and got all the rewards that he thought he want. And then reflecting back was like, I don't know, I might have made different choices. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent connection. And I did not think of this story in that way until you uh, brought it up earlier. Uh, and I'm glad you brought it up again now. Because, like I said, what really stuck with me in this story was that this reference to the young officer sounding like John. But I think you're right that Weir is in some level ignoring the prompt from the thematic app perception test and instead picking up on the conversation that he's having with Dr. Van Ness and talking about that, about work as a, as a kind of a satisfying and destructive drug like heroin or, or, or opium. But also, you know, there might be a gift that Olivia is giving we're here as well that we're just, we can't see yet. And I'm not, not sure what to make of that, but Maybe the story is a kind of gift that Dennis is receiving or staying up and hearing these stories is something that he is receiving as a sort of gift from Olivia. I have no idea. I don't know what to make of the thematic app perception test right now as a prompt for this story and the one that follows. Though I think in the one that follows, which we will get to in subsequent episodes, in the the story that follows, we are going to see that adult weir, uh, and actually not even adult weir, teenage weir, is going to come to perceive the participation in this storytelling game as 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 a gift, something that that actually does give some value to his life, something that he appropriates. But uh, we'll have to talk about that in future episodes. But before we close this one out, Brandon, I wanted to ask you a question, though. You have already 
already answered it, but I'm going to I'm going to pose it as a question anyway, because in this chapter, Wolf has uh, a lot of uh, direct speech in these interjections that the interjections are all direct speech. And so people are addressing Olivia and they are calling her uh, V.I., capital V, lowercase I. You have been pronouncing that Vi, which is what I was going to ask you <laughs> how to pronounce that as I just decided not to not to attempt to pronounce that because that's certainly going to be how that would be pronounced if her name were like Viola or Violet, but it's Olivia. So I think it's probably V. Like, are people just calling her V? Yeah, it could be. They could just be calling her V. I mean, Rita is Vi because it's V-I, and that's how my brain works. But I think if it's a shortening of Olivia, it's V-sounding. I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned at all that uh, I don't think... I don't know, we probably shouldn't make too much of, is that Gene Wolfe's mother's middle name was Olivia. She was Mary Olivia. And like I said, I've been trying to figure out where a good place to bring this up is. And since we're talking about Olivia's name again, (laughs) now's a good time. Um, I I don't think we're going to go too deep into this as we continue the novel, but I think it's, I don't know, a a different type of critic might might find this real food for thought. So I'm throwing it out here now, but I'll probably just keep saying Vi, uh, but I don't know, maybe we'll treat her name like we've been treating Jimmy McAfee's or McAfee's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll uh, we'll each stake one out and then change our minds about it from time to time anyway, which is, I think, the only way to uh, never be totally wrong. But uh, yeah, I guess this really kind of jumped out to me. Uh, well, for one, I always think in terms of Latin. So an I at the end of the word is pronounced E. Um, you know, it's cacti, not cacti. But but, it, but really what I was thinking about was just the importance of the letter V in the fifth head of Cerberus. And, you know, I don't know that uh, we should be thinking about Olivia in terms of John V. Marsh or, you know, the number five or something like that. But I don't know. Maybe we should. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of other stuff. I mean, we saw Blaine was like super into Emerson. That's Gene Wolf's dad's first name. Like, who knows? Well, I think if we try to approach this novel and, and Fifth Head specifically on those terms, um, we might miss a lot of kind of the literary magic that that Wolf is pulling off here. But I think it's I don't know, maybe we'll dedicate 20 minutes to it in our in our third or fourth or fifth or sixth wrap up episode of this novel. <laughs> yeah, one of them will actually just be about Olivia's name. I think that's, that's the only way only way to be sure. <laughs> well, now that we're kind of considering what our wrap up episodes are going to look like, it's a good time to stop this episode. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Thanks for being with us on this episode. If you are interested in checking out our coverage of the H.P. Lovecraft novel at the Mountains of Madness, we would love to have you join us on Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Media. Next episode here, we're going to be covering pages 152 to 169 in the Orb 2012 edition, which has us reading up through the line, I swung my legs over the edge of the bed, which I give for those of you who are reading along in one of the other editions. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>